Some years ago, an unsaved man married an unsaved woman. Their self-destructive lives crashed headlong in the cauldron of marriage. He became an alcoholic. After many years of self-destructive living, she eventually became a Christian. This man grew increasingly self-centered and self-destructive, shaking the very foundations of his home. And as this couple's marriage tottered on the verge of collapse, I was asked to confront the husband with his need to change. I anxiously pulled up to the, into the driveway of their home and saw him working on his car outside. I thought, that's, that's good. And I saw that he was working with a knife, and I thought, that's not so good. <laughs> The man was utterly miserable, I knew this. He was seething with bitter anger toward his wife. He had been drinking as he did every day. And it was my task to disturb this already disturbed life with a message that he needed to turn from his ways. And of course, he was at this point convinced that he was all right. And everyone else was the one with the problem. Seeing the hostility in his face when I delivered my message, I seriously worried that he would plunge that knife into my chest. He didn't, thankfully, in the grace of God. We live, don't we, in a highly disturbed world. We live among many people that face great upheaval and trial because of sin. Sin wreaks havoc at every level of sinners' lives. And living in willful rebellion against God, the lost rage against Him, whether they know it consciously or not, they rage against Him with their actions and dreams, with their attitudes and passions, their affections, and their objects of worship, which they hold in a death grip. A suicidal death grip, and they pull it to their chest and hold on for all they're worth. And when someone disturbs their rebellion with a message of repentance and reconciliation to God, the negative reaction is often intense, and we know that this is coming. Now it's at this point that we tend to run into some problems. Because we know we're talking to people disturbed by sin, and we know that we're bringing a message that many times will disturb even further, we have a tendency to adjust the message. It is exceedingly difficult in light of this challenge for those who are proclaiming the gospel of Christ not to adjust. For instance, one wrong response is just to simply say nothing. One way not to disturb a disturbed person in their sin is to not say anything. And so we get frightened, and we stop, we say nothing. Another wrong response is to adopt a belligerent, mean-spirited approach. There are many churches that, in, that almost encourage such an environment. They realize that Christians are a minority, the Christian message is troubling, and so they develop a sort of orientation where they're just mean-spirited, and they bludgeon people with the gospel, with a message of condemnation, kind of expecting there's going to be a negative response, they just sort of preempt the thing and have this very belligerent kind of orientation. There are others who try to mask the whole issue by constant emphasis upon the miraculous. It's like we're going to wow the unbeliever so that we never really get around to this idea that there's an offense to the gospel. 
None of this, and we could add many other ideas, is the way of Jesus. The following the law of love does not lead us to run away from such conflict. It does not send us into attack mode. It does not lead us to hide in refuge behind the phenomenal, miraculous, or something of the like. The way of Jesus is to so love God and others that we proclaim the gospel of Christ with patient, rational, winsome earnestness, remaining undeterred by the potential or even actual resistance from unbelievers. In sharing the gospel, we will disturb a disturbed world. But we should not retreat to unloving coping mechanisms. Ways to, in a sense, salve our conscience by declaring the gospel of Christ on some level, but yet armoring ourselves against the resistance in some way. So it's my prayer for us as a church, and I I pray that you would join with me in this, that God in His merciful grace would nurture in us a love for the lost that fits us with a backbone of steel that doesn't run away, a thoroughly rational and biblical message, and winsome grace towards sinners. Courage, truth, and grace. These themes surface in Acts 17, if you'll make your way there, as the Apostle Paul and Silas leave their mission in Philippi, a tremendously successful mission, and they're going to work their way, you see at the top and toward the left corner of the map here, from Philippi to Thessalonica. Remember, they have been beaten mercilessly in Philippi. They've suffered for Christ. But it has been a tremendous mission where people have come to trust Jesus as Savior. And as they come to Thessalonica, and they're going to minister there and in Berea, it would appear that Luke is purposefully coupling these two cities together in his description of the mission. There's a lot of things he doesn't tell us, but it seems that he couples them together so that we would see the contrast between the response in these two cities. Following the Via Ignatia, this road that makes its way across from Thessalonica westward across the Greek peninsula, we're in this second missionary journey, and on this grand Roman road built by the Caesars, but now in the providence of God serving the cause of Christ, he makes his way to Thessalonica. Verse 1 of chapter 17, we pick the account up there. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Amphipolis, about 33 miles from Philippi, and a larger, more important city than Philippi, but Paul seems to be anxious to get to Thessalonica, which is an even more important and populous city. Passing through also Apollonia, another 27 miles, probably stopping at these places to sleep or to to, uh, resupply, we're not sure, but they make their way finally to Thessalonica, the capital of the province of Macedonia. It's a large, prosperous, influential, commercial city. Here, verse 2, Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. I'd like you to notice here three words in these two verses, verses 2 and 3. 
There's the word reasoned, the word explaining, and the word proving. We put these Greek words together in their meaning. We understand that Paul addressed the congregation by means of logical argumentation, explaining the meaning of the Old Testament scriptures and rationally demonstrating from them the necessity of Jesus' death and resurrection in an earnest attempt to persuade his hearers that Jesus is the Messiah. I'll put that all together and think about what's going on here in evangelism. This approach is really consistent with what we see from the other evangelists in the book of Acts. So we're not saying this is just Paul's unique way of doing it. But there's something that's consistent with all that we see in this book. Think of, for instance, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip addresses this man in his sin, and he takes the Scriptures and reasons with him from Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53. He was crushed for our iniquities. Let me explain to you what the Bible means. And he rationally takes him through this discussion. Or think of Peter on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2, using the Old Testament Scriptures and arguing from them that Jesus has risen from the dead, that Jesus is pouring out His Spirit upon his people. Or Peter with Cornelius, again, speaking in rational terms, describing the Christian faith, its authenticity. The apostles did not then preach salvation in Jesus' name as primarily an emotional experience, an existential breakthrough, or ecstatic personal decision. Undoubtedly, as we respond to the gospel of Christ, we should respond with greatly oriented passions and affections toward Christ. It will affect how we feel and the response to God. But, think of it, it's not just this emotional experience that they're aiming to. They sought to persuade the lost to see who Jesus was, what He did, and the utter necessity of their repentance from sin and trust in Christ as Savior. He was proving The Greek word indicates that he was turning to prophetic texts in the Old Testament and matching them with their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. What's he arguing? We don't know exactly. The text is not given to us of his sermon. But we can fill in some details. Drawing from perhaps Luke 24 and the same experience there as Jesus is talking to the two on the way to Emmaus using the Old Testament Scriptures, saying here's what they say, and here's how they're fulfilled in Jesus Christ. What might be some examples? Perhaps the reference to the greater prophet than Moses. Certainly Psalm 16, verses 8-11, through and the resurrection of Jesus, God would not allow His Holy One to see decay. Undoubtedly, Psalm 110 and verse 1, this uh, whole Davidic typology, that is, David is the king, but there is a greater king than him, a Lord that will come who is his son, arguing from such texts of the Old Testament. Isaiah 52 and 53, as with the Ethiopian eunuch, he was crushed for our iniquities. He was the lamb on which our sin was placed, and he bore our sins in his body. We don't know all of what Paul preached here, but we do know that he is reasoning from the Scriptures, defending and explaining their meaning from the text. I don't believe it is reading too much into this passage 
to say that there is a sense that comes from it that we should have a picture of, a, of the ideal evangelistic approach. And I think the ideal in evangelism that should be in our minds is to sit down and talk through texts of Scripture with lost people. Sometimes all we can do is hand someone some literature. Sometimes all we can do is make a passing comment, and we should take those opportunities. But I think as we see here, the ideal is to bring a person to a place where we have the opportunity to rationally demonstrate from the Scriptures who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. I think there are many Christians, it seems to me, who are sort of stuck in the mode of occasionally saying God-type things to people in daily conversation and thinking that they're faithful witnesses of Christ. Where what we actually say, what actually comes from our speech, could never bring someone to Christ as Savior. Now we need to say those things, again, to make contacts, to let people know who we are, to build relationships. But I think what we really need to have in our mind is I need to be working to bring people to a place where they are considering the Bible. They are considering the revelation of God so that they can respond to what God is teaching them about salvation. It is important to move people rationally and to treat them with dignity as something else I think that we see here. In other words, not to coerce and manipulate and to create certain feelings and situations where people feel compelled to respond to the Scriptures. There's some churches, I think, that teach such schemes, and I don't think they're biblical or proper. As John Stott puts it, by demanding uncritical acceptance of the Gospel, we are not advancing the Gospel of Christ. We're simply putting people on the spot and they are responding for other reasons than genuine gospel witness. Now, an example. It's a simple example that draws us all in as a church. But we have our Vacation Bible School coming here fairly soon, and we will anticipate that there will be any number of unsaved children who will come to our building and will hear the gospel of Christ. We want to be faithful to reason from the Scriptures to present who Jesus is in His death and resurrection. But I would imagine that we could very easily manipulate any number of young people making a profession of faith in Christ by simply creating an environment where they are responding not to the Holy Spirit's illumination of Scripture, but they are responding to some sort of external manipulative means that we use. And we might be able to, to boast to the church and to other churches that all these children that trusted Christ as Savior, when many of them have no more trusted Christ as Savior than have eaten liver and onions that morning. It, just, it, just, it isn't reality. It's simply that we are, we are pressing children with some sort of external environment. And we can do that with others as well, to manipulate decisions. We never see that in the apostles' evangelistic pursuit. It is always to take the revealed Word of God, depending on His Spirit, than to unveil the meaning of God's Word such that a person may respond and be saved by God's grace. And there is a response to Paul's preaching, isn't there? It's a glorious response in verse 4. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. 
diverse group here, Jews. We have Gentiles, probably those who are following Judaism as God-fearers, men, and then women of influence in Thessalonica. It'd be very interesting to know who they were. Maybe they just saw religion as a hobby and had the freedom as wealthier, influential women to sit in on these synagogue discussions. We're not sure. But they hear the gospel of Christ and they respond to it. And we should rejoice that Jesus, not only in this day, but in our day, continues to save souls. What we're seeing here is the risen Christ through His Spirit winning people to salvation. But there are others in this disturbed world who are none too happy about this assault of the gospel upon their disturbed depravity. Verse 5, But the Jews were jealous, And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring him out to the crowd. What is the motive for this resistance? It is jealousy. The message of Paul and Silas was stealing away converts and diverting attention from these self-seeking Jews. As we move to Berea, there will be evidence here that these individuals were not good people, and they are stirred by false motives. What method do they use to resist Paul? It is not, we notice here, rational debate, is it? It's not saying, let's take the Scriptures, Paul, and we want to argue from them that you're wrong. It's not that at all, is it? What they do is they gain some people from the rabble. I love the King James reading. Lewd fellows of the baser sort. That puts it well, doesn't it? I mean, you know exactly what it means. Sometimes in King James' language, you have no clue what it means, but that one, that's real clear. Lewd fellows of the baser sort. That's exactly who they are. That's who they appeal to. Think of it. Paul's opponents, then, are willing to work among the dregs of society to find some louts, some troublemakers, to agitate the city officials against the evangelists. Again, probably not just a rabid crowd that's going to eat them alive, but this is one of those Greek assembly of citizens gathered together who will be very vocal and will be saying, these men must stop preaching this message. We do ask here at this point, did I miss something or who is Jason? You didn't miss anything and we don't know who he is. He just shows up here out of nowhere. But I, I think Luke is probably conserving parchment and ink, but we, we can fill in fairly clearly that this is apparently a convert who is there in Thessalonica. I suppose you could argue that he's a Christian who is already there. We cannot prove one way or the other. But at any rate, Jason is, is welcoming in uh, Paul and Silas and the message that they proclaim. Perhaps believers are gathering in his home. But the th- authorities fully expect to find Paul and Silas at Jason's house. But they do not. Verse 6, when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Paul and Silas were either gone at the time or perhaps there had been a tip that the officials were coming. They're not there in Jason's home. But what a great word 
that is spoken about them in their absence. In the middle of verse 6, the word they shouted was, these men have turned the world upside down. The idea of the Greek is that they've disturbed the world. They have upset this disturbed world with a message of repentance and change. The charges are radically unjust, yet ironically, in a way these opponents could not grasp, they were gloriously true. They had disturbed a disturbed world with the gospel, and people knew it. They've turned the world upside down. Similarly, the charge that they were violating Roman law by advocating another king is patently untrue. Yet, ironically, in a way their opponents could not understand, Jesus was a king who would conquer all kings and rule the world. There will be a day that he's the only king. And so, even though the Christians are honoring those who are ruling with authority, yes, they do preach a message of a king who will defeat all kings and rule. A brief sideline here might be in order, and that is concerning Rome's relationship with the Jews, not with the church here, which is under clear display. But I think what's behind all of what's happening here is Rome's relationship with the Jews. You realize it's not going real well between Rome and the Jews at this point. We are very close, just a couple of decades away from the time when Rome will level Jerusalem and scatter the Jews from there. And in very close proximity here to the Emperor Claudius who expelled the Jews from Rome. Why did he do that? One Roman historian, Suetonius, wrote that Claudius, quote, banished from Rome all the Jews who were continually making disturbances at the instigation of one Crestus. Historians differ on this, but Crestus can be clearly shown to be a name for Christ. And it is very likely that this is a reference to the upheaval of the Jews over Jesus being presented as their Messiah. We don't know that for sure, but we do know that there's a real bad relationship between Rome and the Jews about this time. Now you bring in Christians. Roman officials have no idea who they are. There's some toleration of Israel's faith because it is ancient, and there is some understanding that the Christians are somehow related to the Jews. So they're probably a Jewish sect. The Jews come in at this point and say, absolutely not. These Christians are not part of us. And you need to understand, Roman officials, that they are troubling this world. They are troubling the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And you need to crush them. Indeed, they are advocating another king. They're insurrectionists. So while the Jews are working desperately to distinguish themselves from the Christians, Rome is trying to figure out what on earth is going on and how to respond to these people. And certainly what was said troubled them. Verse 8, the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And of course they would be. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So this charge of radical social disturbance is troubling, and they come up with a course of action which will severely restrict Paul and Silas. The authorities force Jason to post bail. As Peterson writes, this was a good behavior bond. And I think that's right. Jason, we're going to release you, 
you're going to put down some serious money here that we are going to hold as assurance that Paul and Silas will not speak here again or will, not, or will leave the city or whatever the uh, deal was between them. We don't want these men in our city anymore. You make sure they don't come back and cause trouble. You remember what we just read in 1 Thessalonians earlier today? Paul, I wanted to come and visit you, but Satan hindered me. Whatever the reason, whatever the satanic hindrance, certainly this was part of it, that there was bail that had been posted. A sum of money that would be lost for the gospel if Paul and Silas caused any trouble. It was a difficult situation. And we ask, they go on, they move on past Thessalonica, but how then do the believers fare there? We read in 1 Thessalonians 2 a few ideas. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians 3. Paul is writing soon after his visit there, and he's writing back to them, and we get little bits as we read between the lines to see how they are faring under persecution in Thessalonica. Chapter 3 and verse 3. That no one be moved by these afflictions, he says. They're having afflictions. They're suffering affliction. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Don't be surprised by it. But they're persecuted. For when we, verse 4, were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass. And just as you know. Paul suffered there, in Thessalonica, and the Thessalonians who, or Thessalonians who have been left behind are suffering as well. Second book of Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Speaking of a future day when God would bring justice, but notice there, they are being afflicted. These believers faced Severe persecution for their faith. The response in Thessalonica, how would you describe it? This was a rough place. This was not an easy response. There are those who have trusted Christ. A solid church takes root here, but this is a tough response. Now, put right up against it, and I think there's much that will come out of this, but put right up against it is Paul's mission in Berea. All kinds of things that Luke doesn't write about here. He puts these two together, I think, for a reason, as is characteristic of his writing style, loving to put two things together that contrast. What is the response in Berea? The brothers, verse 10, immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Berea, about 50 miles from Thessalonica, off the Via Ignatia, off the beaten path, as one historian put it. Not an important city, but a populous city. And here, verse 11, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. The punctuation here, I think, is right. A semicolon or a period, end of thought. They were more noble people. One evidence of this is how they will respond to the preaching of the gospel, but that's not the only reason why they were more noble. They just were more noble, as as the Greek text would put it. But these noble people received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. You notice the word examining. 
There's a theme here, isn't there? With open-minded integrity, they, tr- they tested and cross-examined Paul's arguments to see if they were biblically based. Is Paul teaching the truth? As we consider this commendation in the text of Scripture, it reminds us, first of all, that genuine Christianity welcomes careful thought. Indeed, it demands it. Paul pressed unbelievers to reason with him, believing that aided by the Spirit of God, those thoughts could come alive and lead to conversion. Never does a genuine witness for Christ think that his or her reasoning ability will ever bring anyone to Christ. Only the Spirit of God can witness the truth of God. However, we do use rational explanation, explaining and proving what the Scriptures mean. This is a means that God uses. And again, we see here that the ideal evangelism situation is to lead unbelievers to sit down with an open Bible and to consider the message of Scripture. They're examining the Scriptures to see if what Paul says is right. Paul's argument is not, hey, look at these miracles that I'm doing. You don't need to ask any more questions. His argument is not, look at my pedigree as a great Jewish rabbi. Don't ask any questions. Just believe what I say. I'm an apostle of the risen Christ. I've seen it. It's not just witness. What is it? He takes the revealed Word of God and he wants people to examine its truth. Because it is the seed of the Word that takes root in the heart and watered and breathed upon by the Spirit of God brings new life. So, verse 12, there's a response. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Here's these women again. It'd be very interesting to know who they are. But they're also in Thessalonica. And they are responding. What what do we see here in verse 12? Again, we're to rejoice that the risen Lamb is ruling from heaven's throne and continues to bring in a harvest of souls through the witness of His people. But there's also the other response. Verse 13, But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowd. hundred miles round trip. These guys are serious. They want this message stopped. Then, verse 14, the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him, as soon as possible, they departed. About a 220-mile journey south to Athens from Berea, 300 miles If he went by sea, we're not sure exactly how he made it. There's some debate about the text here. But Timothy has remained behind the scenes since joining at Lystra, but I think he's been with the band all the way along. And apparently Paul determines that the field at Athens is ripe for evangelism, so he calls Silas and Timothy to leave Thessalonica in order to join him. And certainly their efforts were part of the deepening of that church and the wonderful uh, truth that is revealed about them in the epistles to the Thessalonians. Now putting these two responses together, 
We see certainly in the text of Acts that the evangelists are willing to bend, to sway a bit depending upon the context, depending upon their hearers. But I would argue that they stand with a backbone of steel. Whether the response is good or whether the response is poor, they continue to deliver the message. And we're to understand, number one, that normal Christian living involves rejection from people disturbed by our message that they should leave their sin. If you are rejected by someone for sharing the gospel, that would be in the most simple of terms, in a casual conversation, or inviting someone to church, or having someone scream at you because you're seeking to lead them to Christ. Wherever it is in that range. When people mistreat you and reject you for sharing the gospel, you're living a normal Christian life. That's the way that it is. That's the way it was with Jesus. That's the way it was with the apostles. And we should rejoice then that we've been counted worthy to identify with the sufferings of Christ. On the other hand, some will give us a hearing, won't they? Some will, some will not, but we must remain consistent with our approach. Different responses, the same message, the same basic method of proclaiming the gospel. What I would like to encourage us as a church to never do is to develop coping mechanisms that are unloving and self-protective. Because someone may not respond well to the gospel, we just don't say anything. Are you guilty of that? I know I certainly am. Guilty of considering there's somebody I don't think will respond well, and so I just bite my tongue. That's a self-protective coping mechanism that is lacking in grace and love. Or, again, to run with these other ideas, the phenomenal. Here's this great thing that's happening. Maybe it's even miraculous. Maybe we wouldn't appeal to that as much as a group generally. But some great event or great experience or tremendous phenomena that we want to hide behind to avoid the offense of the gospel. Certainly on another trajectory is this harshness. I kind of just... As, as one boy told me in the South one day, I just done got him told. That kind of spirit. You know the point. I, I, I got the message out. I done got him told. I said my piece. I told him the gospel. And we just bludgeon people with the truth. That is not what we see evidence for us in the early church and in its evangelistic success And so I pray for our church, for myself, let us join in prayer together this day that we would learn and remember that the way of Jesus is to so love God and to so love others that we proclaim the gospel of Christ with patient, rational, winsome earnestness, remaining undeterred by the potentially or even actual resistance that might come from unbelievers. That we would not begin to adjust the message, pulling punches at some places, or bludgeoning people at others so that we get them told, so that we say the message, but we're not really doing what needs to be done to bring people to Christ. 
Let me say as well along these lines that Christianity will never conquer anyone's heart by mere intellectual endeavor. But genuine gospel witness involves rational thought. If the message that I'm proclaiming is one that I don't want people to test, I'm probably proclaiming the wrong message. You're just supposed to believe it. You're not supposed to ask any hard questions. It's not the way the evangelists proclaim the truth. They said, here is what God has revealed. And they allowed the Spirit of God to take that message and to root it in the souls of people who believed. I think then, along those lines, putting this together, we need to work to see people sit down to study the Bible. We have curricula that's available to us within our church and outside of the church, certainly, that will help you do that. And the question that I ask is, are we doing it? Do we really perceive evangelism in these kinds of terms? I realize there's a distinct setting. I realize there's a synagogue setting, and that is a bit distinct. But using that and jumping from it, I think we do see the principle of bringing people to consider what the Bible's actually saying. How are you working to see that happen? How am I working to see that happen? Now, all of us will be a bit distinct in the way we do it. Some, indeed, will probably primarily, if not exclusively, point others to someone else who might do such teaching. But in any event, all we really need to do, if you know Christ as Savior, you're walking with Him in fellowship, particularly those that have been in this church for some time and are grounded in faithful doctrine, all you need to do is to be able to read. There's curricula that is available for you that you can just sit down with someone and read as a guide. You don't necessarily need to know all the right verses, all the right passages. Where do I turn? What you know, if they would ask you a question, you will know enough to explain the gospel to them. You will know enough to read through a guide that will help them understand the scriptures. It's really not a matter of, I'm not able, I'm not equipped it's far more of a matter of it doesn't matter enough to us. Are we steering people to a hearing of the Word of God sitting down to really consider what it's saying? Many of these people will not respond. Many won't agree to sit down in a Bible study. But many won't respond if they've sat through one. I've talked to people in Bible studies for weeks and weeks on end. They've never trusted Christ the Savior. But there will be some who will. And let us pray as a church that God would bring us to that place, that we would be laboring to bring people to a hearing of the Scriptures where we can prove its meaning and permit them and encourage them to examine the Scriptures and some would come to trust Christ the Savior. Let's continue to think on that and move that way. in that consideration of the text of Scripture. Perhaps all you really understand about this is that you're one of those who are disturbed by sin. And it's a disturbing message to think of radical change, of a radical change of life orientation, 
But the gospel of Jesus Christ calls you to this. To realize that in your sin, you stand before a holy God and you must stand in eternity in perfection. Because of your sin, you will never achieve that perfection in your own strength. But in the mercy of God, you can receive and be given as a gift the righteous standing of Jesus Christ. Turning from your sin and embracing His gift of life by paying the penalty of your sin and rising from the dead, we may have life in His name. That is, in the end, ironically, a disturbing message that is a message of pure peace. And I would encourage you, even if you've made profession of faith in Christ, even if other people think that you're a believer, or if certainly if you know that you're not, I would encourage you as you leave today to talk to someone and say, I would like to sit down with an open Bible and consider the meaning of God's Word. We would love to do that, and I would encourage you to do that. As we take that message and speak to people from the text of Scripture, pointing them to such occasions, not all will respond. Not all will respond well. And indeed, we must be careful that we don't become, as a church, people who just invite people to Bible study. We need to proclaim Christ. But as we work to that end, may God pour out His blessing upon us to enable us to see people responding, not just to a testimony, not responding emotionally to some experience that we have pressed upon them, but coming by the Spirit of God to see the truth of the Word and coming to salvation in Christ. What a joy that is. What a joy it's been. What a joy it is for me to see as I look across this congregation and the earlier one this morning, people who I know have taken these unique opportunities and have brought people to such hearings of the Word of God. May we continue to labor to that end, and may God pour out His blessing upon those labors. Let's bow for prayer. Father, how short we fall, how weak we are, but we thank You, God, for this example of faith And I pray that we would be laboring faithfully to unveil the meaning of the text of Scripture and to point people to Jesus Christ. Aid us in that effort. And God, we rejoice to pause and to think this is your effort. We thank you for the saving work of Jesus that is alive and well in this day as it was in that day. And we pray that you will continue to spread the gospel for the glory of your name and for the salvation of those lost in sin. We ask, Lord, that you would move us uniquely as a congregation. And should there be one among us who does not know Christ as Savior, Father, I pray that there would be a hearing of the Word of God that is Spirit-enabled and that salvation would come to that heart today. This is our prayer before you, asking for your help, for strength. In Christ's name, amen.